Well, now it's time for Discovering Music. This week, Stephen Johnson is the guest of the Norfolk and Norwich Music Club, where he joins the Gould Piano Trio and friends for an exploration of Schubert's Trout Quintet. That's the beginning of one of Schubert's most popular works, the Trout Quintet. Why it's called the Trout, we'll be hearing in a little while. But Schubert wrote it in 1819, when he was just 22, so it's quite an early piece. Except, as the great writer on music Donald Francis Tovey put it, since Schubert died at the age of 31, you could say that all we have is early Schubert. It actually does surprise me sometimes when you hear people talking about late Schubert. You have to remember that this is a person who died at the age that Beethoven was when he was just about writing his first symphony. It's a pretty staggering thought. It's even more staggering when you consider how much Schubert managed to write in that tiny lifespan. The catalogue, the great Deutsch catalogue, lists over a thousand works. Now, some of these are pretty small works, like the songs, but there are well over 600 songs. And one has to bear in mind the fact that, according to one of his friends, Schubert was capable of writing up to seven songs in one day, and then actually going out to the pub afterwards. And statistically speaking, at least one in seven of those songs ought to be a masterpiece. So that just goes to show what an incredible productivity it was. Alongside this, we have operas, quite a few operas, some finished, some incomplete, big religious works, including two enormous symphonic masses, symphonies, not just the symphonies with numbers, a huge number of piano sonatas and string quartets. This is absolutely extraordinary productivity for anybody, least of all somebody who died at 31, which has tempted at least one writer to speculate as to whether there might have been something inside Schubert that knew he hadn't got that much time and was telling him to get a move on. I've worked out certainly that the time it took him to write his last three piano sonatas was probably about as fast as I could copy them. And yet we are talking about some of the greatest works in piano literature. But Schubert can't have known that he hadn't got much time in 1819. He hadn't yet, it seems, caught the fatal illness, which, alas, was probably syphilis, which either took him away in 1828 or weakened his immune system so much that an infection took him away. And the Trout Quintet itself seems so full of life and love and happiness. There are often very dark shadows in Schubert's works, particularly in the later works, but there are very few here. It's full of the spirit of the great outdoors. Schubert loved walking. He loved going on walking holidays. He toured a lot of Austria. Austrian forests and lakes and mountains all inspired him. And throughout the Trout Quintet, you can hear 
paces. There's a sort of a pulse underneath that sounds like walking or movement of some kind, either an energetic walk, a brisk walk, or a kind of meditative stroll. While the theme of the finale sounds to me rather like a kind of jog trot. You can imagine a pony and trap here. Perhaps Schubert has decided that the last stage of the journey he's just had enough of walking and maybe decided to hitch a lift. It still has that lovely sense of coming to the last stage of a journey after a long and very contented walk. The beginning of the finale of Schubert's Trout Quintet, played for us there by the members of the Gould Piano Trio, Lucy Gould, Alice Neary and Benjamin Frith, plus James Boyd Viola and Graham Mitchell Bass. That's possibly, as I said, a pony and trap or some kind of jog trot. But, you know, there are other passages in the trout where you might imagine someone just strolling through romantic scenery and maybe humming to yourself as you go along. Or maybe this is just the sound of the spirit, as it were, singing within as you enjoy a really fabulous landscape. Schubert's Trout Quintet is one of the very few examples of a work that Schubert actually wrote to a commission. Most of it he actually wrote for his own purposes and almost out of his own overflowing imagination. The Trout was written for a mining engineer and musical patron by the name of Sylvester Paumgartner for one of his musical at-homes. He liked to have little musical evenings. And it's said that Palmgarten himself suggested to Schubert that he use his own song, The Trout, Di Forella, as the basis of part of the work. By this stage, the, the trout was extremely popular. It's not true, as you sometimes read in some older stories of, of Schubert, that, that Schubert was unknown in his own lifetime. He was known very much for his popular works. We now think of his popular works, his lighter works, his, some of his more enjoyable songs, not the deeper, darker songs like the Winterreiser cycle. And most of his bigger, ambitious works weren't known at all. But certainly the Trout Quintet seems to have been a great hit right from the start. Now, one thing that's interesting is you've probably noticed, uh, looking at the musicians on the stage, there's something a little bit unusual about this chamber formation here. The piano quintet is nowadays a very well-established medium. If you think of the great examples of the piano quintet, there are examples like Schumann, Brahms, César Franck, Faure, who wrote two of them, or Elgar. They're all for the same combination, which is a string quartet plus piano. That's two violins, viola, cello, and piano. But what we've got here is something else. We've got a piano plus a string trio plus a double bass. 
Now, it's rather unusual to find a double bass in chamber music. You might think that an instrument that's as powerful as this, that can hold its own so strongly, might unbalance the ensemble. It's one of the miracles of this piece, how well Schubert uses it. And one thing that it does, which is rather interesting, is that it frees up the piano in an unusual and interesting way, because often when you have piano with strings, the strings themselves, of their solo strings, are not really powerful enough to give a big resonant bass sonority. And it's up to the piano to provide the big, deep, resonant notes. If you think of maybe Brahms's piano quintet, there's a lot of big, rich left-hand writing to make sure that the sound has a firm foundation. But Schubert doesn't have to do this because the firm foundation is already here in the double bass, which means that the piano is set free to create a different kind of piano texture, very much the kind of sounds that you'd expect associated with water, maybe, which is rather appropriate in a piece called The Trout. So much of this piece is these kind of crystalline, watery, transparent textures higher up on the instrument. This, this, this passage is typical. passage, the piano hardly ever goes below middle C, which is very unusual in a work like this. It doesn't have to, because the double bass provides that splendid, strong bass line. It also means that the piano can do something which, again, is rather untypical of chamber music. It can sing out treble melodies with both hands in octaves. There's a very good example of this near the beginning of the fourth movement, which is the variation movement based on the song Di Forella, the Trout. So the trout has a kind of sound world, a kind of texture, which is not quite like anything else in chamber music. But it's not just a question of piano and string textures. There's a whole world of what you might call romantic evocation here. Schubert loves creating moods, sound pictures, shades of meaning. If you know Schubert's songs, often it's the piano accompaniment that will create the kind of atmosphere, the background to the, which the words of the song are enacted. And that's just as much the case in this piece as it is in those little songs. Was Schubert romantic or was he classical? Well, in 1819, romanticism itself as a movement, certainly in the literary world in particular, was really at its height. 
But there's a kind of debate that goes on it. I can think of one very great authority on the symphonies who insists that it's wrong to think of Schubert at all as a romantic composer. He was a classical composer, very much in Haydn and Mozart's lineage. On the face of it, at least, Schubert's Trout Quintet is structured a bit like a classical divertimento. It's in five movements on a kind of Mozartian pattern. Now, round about 1819, or just a little earlier, Schubert had been going through a bit of a reaction against Beethoven. He complained a couple of years earlier in a letter about the extravagance and willful disregard for conventional forms of one of our greatest German artists. Schubert is careful not to mention his name, even in this letter to a friend, which might explain why the lovely Symphony No. 5, one of Schubert's most popular early works, which he wrote when he was still in his teens, uh, sounds very neoclassical, very Mozartian, after what seems like a kind of early example of Sturm und Drang romanticism in the Fourth Symphony. But by 1919, Schubert is beginning to re-emerge from this period of kind of retrenchment, going back to the ideal of Mozart. And the kind of crisis starts in his, his composition as well. I mean, I, you probably, most of you know that Schubert wrote a famous unfinished symphony. But actually, that's not true. He wrote six unfinished symphonies, at least. And there seems to have been an extraordinary period he went through between about 1820 and 1823, when he started work after work and for some reason or other didn't finish them. The unfinished symphony, the famous unfinished symphony in B minor, is only just one example. And they're all different. There's a couple of symphonies in D major that he starts in piano score and then for some reason or other stops. Sometimes it's not very easy to see why. One of these symphonies has a magnificent scherzo, and you think, well, this is really excellent. Why stop? There's another symphony, a symphony in E major, where the trombones appear for the first time in Schubert's symphony orchestra, which is a tremendously dramatic moment. But after about a couple of hundred bars in, of orchestral score, it suddenly becomes just a violin line. He's written out the melody line all the way through the symphony, added a few notes to indicate what the harmonies are, what the orchestration are, and for some reason or other, he seems never to have got round to actually filling in the bits. It's quite possible that he just had so many ideas pressing for expression that he thought, no, I've, I've got past this stage already. I must get on to something else, which is, after all, what may have happened in the case of the famous Unfinished Symphony. But anyway, this quintet, the Trout Quintet, does seem at first quite neat and self-contained. You might say it's classical. There doesn't seem to be a great deal of sort of Beethovenian willful extravagance about it. But at the same time, Schubert is opening out new imaginative possibilities, new expressive possibilities. There's a marvelous example of this right at the start. It's a very simple A major tune. What we have is a kind of dialogue between rippling, watery figure on the piano and a kind of chorale theme, a sort of choral theme on the strings, like one of Schubert's part songs that he wrote for home consumption, the kind of thing people would sing around the fireside, which were also growing in popularity at the time. You could imagine words almost to what the strings are playing. <laughs> And then comes one of those absolutely wonderful changes in harmony, which Schubert seems to be able to pull off like no other composer. The piano's last rippling figures are in the home key of the work, which is A major. But then the harmony shifts on the strings, and it's the double bass that provides the basis of the shift, down to F natural. 
Now, this isn't just a really lovely effect. It's like a new vista opening up. It's like you're looking at a view, and you think you've taken it all in, and suddenly you look, and my goodness, there's a valley over there I hadn't noticed, and you're completely enraptured by this. It's a very romantic way of thinking about harmony and about musical architecture. We'll take it from the final phrase of that figure we've just heard. So there we have it, A major, then suddenly, magically, F major, and then back to A major again. But it's not just about two stages in an abstract musical argument. It's about two worlds of feeling. Sometimes with Beethoven, you feel that he's almost taking an intellectual delight in creating these extraordinary tonal arguments in his pieces and seeing how much energy he can create for them. But Schubert, you feel it's almost like scene painting. It is a very romantic conception. At the same time, the way he develops themes as well shows how interested he is in sound images and what they can evoke. Take that sort of rippling piano figure we heard right at the beginning of the quintet. Now, Schubert plays around with that idea, but it's not so much like the way Beethoven takes the famous da-da-da-dam in the Fifth Symphony and works amazing transformations on that. What he takes is the idea of rippling the idea of a watery figuration on the piano, and develops that. So that in the passage that follows, you can hear more and more kind of rippling figurations, as in, for instance, when the opening theme comes back and the piano adds embellishments to it. They're like water, like an alpine stream, especially in the piano. Lovely. Thank you to the Gould Piano Trio and friends who are clearly identifying with Schubert's sense of purpose or his sense of romantic evocation here. It's, it's fascinating to compare Schubert with Beethoven. Schubert venerated Beethoven in later life and set himself the task when Beethoven died in 1827 of following in Beethoven's footsteps as Beethoven's heir. Alas, he had only a year before his own death 
Schubert can be almost as, as extraordinarily purposeful as Beethoven. The year after he wrote the Trout Quintet, he wrote the first movement of a quartet in C minor. That's as far as he got. He got a few bars into the slow movement and then seems to have given up again for some extraordinary reason. It can't have been that he was dissatisfied because that single movement as it stands on its own is one of the masterpieces of, of string quartet repertoire. It's an amazingly purposeful, driven, remarkable work with incredible kind of intellectual about it. But Schubert could also be the epitome of the romantic figure of the Wanderer. One of his most famous songs is a setting of the poem The Wanderer, and there's his fantasy for piano, which is based on that song called The Wanderer Fantasy, which is a highly original four movement in one movement structure, which was a huge influence on, on Liszt and some of Liszt's tone poems. But that sense of wandering is something that actually Schubert made very much his own at this early and crucial stage in German Romanticism. Let's have a look at the central section of the first movement of the Trout, which is the section which, according to the textbooks, ought to be called the development section. But it's not one of those kind of dynamic, exhaustive, intellectually concentrated development sections like you get in, say, say Beethoven's symphonies or string quartets. Schubert, as it were, wanders into new territory. It's as though he's taking a walk through some woods and suddenly sees a path and thinks, oh, I don't know where that goes. Shall we see where that goes? And he takes delight in, as it were, wandering off the track. And yet, somehow or other, he seems to have an instinctive confidence that he'll end up in the right place. And this passage really does seem to work like that marvelously. It wanders through a whole variety of different keys. Each time you seem to sense the vista is changing as though he's got a new view in his sights. And yet, somehow or other, we arrive back on cue at the opening of the quintet for the recapitulation. Beautifully on cue, beautifully timed, and yet it seems almost to happen by accident.
And there we are, back at the opening figure again, splendidly, the way it just seems to arrive. Although maybe one or two of you who have a really good sense of pitch have probably noticed that it's not quite the way we heard it at the start, because it's in a different key. The home key of the trout is A major. But the recapitulation actually began in D, a fifth lower. So how do we get back to A from there? Well, it's actually very simple. It couldn't be simpler, so Schubert seems to say, because if the first theme of the quintet was in A major, the second theme was in E, a fifth higher. So when you get to the recap, all you have to do is start the first theme in D, and then back to A for the second theme. It's as though Schubert says, there you are, it works. I always knew it would. I like something that Alfred Brendel said, the great pianist and great interpreter of Schubert, that Schubert has the kind of assurance of a sleepwalker. It's, it's, it's not true to suggest that he's kind of naive, as it were, as kind of sleepwalking in terms of his actual thought processes when he writes, because actually if you look at Schubert's surviving sketches and revisions for his important works, you find that he's a much more self-conscious and ingenious composer than first you might think. He makes changes, he adjusts things, he adjusts proportions. I was fascinated to discover that one of the most famous and justly famous and beautiful passages in the great C major symphony where the trombones play this extraordinary idea over and over again in a mounting crescendo was actually an afterthought. Schubert just wrote it on separate bits of paper and stuck it in to the original first movement of the great C major. You can take it out and the piece works perfectly well without it but it was something in as it were assessing the proportions of the work and coming and look at it he thought yeah something's missing we need something but what he comes up with to fill it isn't just filling it's a moment of feels like romantic revelation. So even though Schubert may convey the sense that he's moving like a sleepwalker, well, it's very important to remember that the way that a piece of music seems to think when we're listening to it and the way that a composer actually thinks when he's writing it are not necessarily the same way. The way the creative mind works and then the impression it gives actually when you hear the end result can be quite different. But certainly this idea of wandering, of walking around, seeing where a path leads, seeing where something turns up and always trusting that you'll end up in the right place, that principle seems very much at work in the lovely second movement, the Andante. This also, like that development section in the first movement, wanders in terms of keys. It's quite a journey. We start in F major, then move to A major, then to D major, and then rather amazingly to A flat, and then to A minor, and then back to F again. It's much more magical than that, of course, when you hear the musical flesh Schubert puts on that skeleton. But that's the basis of it. That's what the architecture is about. And sometimes the effect is quite magical. Take the passage where he moves from D to A flat via the key of G. The music comes to a lovely serene rest in the key of G major, and you think, oh, this is fine. And then suddenly starts again in A flat. And it's almost as though you suddenly you're in another place entirely. It's a beautiful, magical moment.
that's just a modulation from one harmony to another. As I said, it's like stepping into a different world, into a different view. But we come back to the home key of A major for the third movement of the Trout Quintet, this wonderful dancing scherzo movement. Schubert, as I said, excelled at popular forms. His own dance tunes, they really are the pop music of his own time, music written for the rising Viennese middle classes. Now, Beethoven's scherzos, which Schubert often models his own on, are very, very much driven and elemental. Schubert's are much more dances of this world, you know. He knows how to relax, and there's something of the flavor of those wonderful Viennese wine cellars or, or pubs that they have, the taverns in Vienna, where they, they call them the Heuriger, where they serve the new wine, which isn't really drinkable on its own, but for some reason or other, add a bit of fizzy mineral water and it becomes just the perfect thing to have on a summer's evening. There's something of that spirit, I think, that, that relaxed enjoyment and the dance in the background at the beginning of the scherzo of the Trout Quintet. <laughs> But there's also quite a lot of compositional ingenuity going on in this scherzo as well. It's not as always relaxed as it seems to be on the surface. Now, one complaint that people used to make about Schubert, it used to be quite the done thing to make complaints about Schubert's musical technique for some reason or other. Fortunately, that fashion has begun to subside. But one complaint that was often made about Schubert was that he wasn't a natural contrapuntalist. People would point to things like the fugues in his great E-flat mass and say, are they quite up to the standard of the rest? of the piece. Uh, maybe sometimes he does, when he tries to present himself as a master of real old-fashioned academic counterpoint, maybe he doesn't always have quite the effortless master of it of, say, that, that Haydn or Mozart did. But Schubert did have a, a facility for counterpoint when he wasn't thinking in terms of academic fugue. There's a lovely example coming up. Uh, we'll, we'll just have the contrapuntal voices on their own. I'll ask the ensemble to play them a little slower. The piano plays the leading motive, and it's closely imitated by the violin, and then the viola. We'll just hear them on their own. It's perfect imitative counterpoint, a three-part canon. But actually, when you hear the whole texture at that point, you might not even notice that Schubert has done this. It just seems to be part of the extraordinary, superabundant vitality of the music. It seems as spontaneous as the tunefulness in this quintet. <laughs> then straight back into the recapitulation and a perfectly orderly recapitulation it is too with that wonderful dancing spirit that we heard at the beginning. And then, as typical in a scherzo, there's a central trio section which is much more relaxed. Now, I don't know if we have any Viennese people in the audience today. There's a very special Viennese word, a German Viennese word, Gemütlichkeit. 
which actually isn't easy to translate absolutely accurately into English. It means a sort of coziness, conviviality, having a good time, everybody's you know, relaxedness, snugness, somehow or other all those words and something else besides, good food, plenty of white wine spritzers, anything along those lines. Schubert excels at evoking this world. And it's worth remembering that after all, although Vienna is strongly associated with so many great composers, very few of those names were actually born there. Very few of them actually grew up there. Schubert is the great exception. He was Viennese to the core. And he does have this ability to summon up this kind of gentle world of Viennese conviviality, of Gemütlichkeit, so splendidly, as in the trio section of the quintet. anything other than Viennese. You can hear the waltzes of Johann Strauss, elder and younger, as it were, taking shape in that already. But then after this scherzo movement comes the variation fourth movement, which is the variation movement based on the song Die Forella, the Trout. Actually, it's interesting, isn't it? German is often said not to be the most beautiful of the European languages. And yet the word forella, I think, is the most beautiful word for a trout in any European language, certainly better than trout. We may call someone an old trout, but alta forella sounds rather complimentary, doesn't it? It's... <laughs> I think it's time we heard this famous song. Here it is. In, uh, it's in, I think one verse should be enough. In einem Becklein helle, das schoss im Rohrein, die launische Forelle fall über wie ein Feind. That was recorded for discovering music by Andrew Kennedy and Christopher Glynn. Now, that really is a great pop tune. It has all the ingredients of a successful pop tune. Not only has it got a lovely, clear, simple, but elegant tune, but it's also got a, what a pop journalist or a rock journalist would call an incredibly important formula as well, which is the hook, rather appropriate in a song about a trout, which is that little dumb figure at the beginning. In other words, a really good pop tune, a journalist will tell you, has to have an accompaniment figure that catches your ear even before the singer comes in. And it really has. It's one of those little sounds that just seems to encapsulate what the song is about and to run through in the background without much change, no, no big dramatic change in texture, but certainly to sustain that image of wateriness in the background. As in the, with, with that watery imagery in the first movement, Schubert doesn't so much develop the tune. In fact, he seems to be content on the whole to pass it round the members of the ensemble, decorate it a bit here, change it slightly, but make sure that we, well, it's such a good tune, you can bear a lot of repetition, as you can hear from the song itself. 
But all the time, he develops the ideas associated with the accompaniment, almost as though he's playing with the idea of what the surface of the water might be like in different kind of conditions. For instance, there's quite a stormy uh, minor key variation a little later in the movement, where it's as though that you can't see the trout. The trout is hidden beneath the surface of this more troubled water. But certainly, you can sense its presence underneath the surface. <laughs> Elsewhere in this movement, Schubert plays around with the water effects, like that hook, as we call it in the song. For instance, in variation one, it's the strings that create the liquid figurations, while the piano sings in that octave style. In the second variation, it's the violin that's allowed a kind of moment in the spotlight in a kind of semi-concertante role, a kind of concerto role. But it's interesting that Schubert, of all the great Viennese composers of that time, that classical romantic era, was the one who seems least interested in virtuosity for his own sake. He never wrote a concerto, for instance, and there's very few examples in his work of display pieces. That wonder of fantasy maybe is one example, but even then it's the romantic poetry of the work, and particularly in the slow movement, that haunts people. But in the second variation of the fourth movement of the trout, he certainly does allow the violin a little bit of a turn in the spotlight to show itself off. Even here, though, what the violin is doing, as much as anything, is developing that kind of flowing, watery imagery. Now, in a classical set of variations, very often variations by Haydn or Mozart or Beethoven, what you find is that as the movement progresses, particularly if it's a slowish tempo movement, the figurations of the accompaniment get faster and faster with each variation. It's a way of building up the tension without breaking the regular repetitive pattern of a variation structure. But here again, as we move on into variation three, it seems that Schubert is more interested here in, as it were, intensifying the mood painting, the picture, still that watery liquid imagery is central. Just about make out the movements of the trout as it were underneath on the cello bass there. And then finally, in the coda of this movement, Schubert allows himself, as it were, to sneak his own song 
into the quintet. We've heard all sorts of different takes on it from the ensemble. Finally, we get what's almost the song itself. The role of the singer is taken by the violin, and the piano takes up the original watery figuration, the hook. Typical of him in many ways to bring it in, not at the beginning, but towards the end of the piece, as it were, by way of explanation. Here it is. Schubert is almost so delighted with that little figure and its expressive, suggestive possibilities that he can't quite leave it alone, having brought it back and treated it so extensively. It actually turns up again, as it were, in triumph near the end of the finale, and it combines brilliantly with the finale theme, that jog-trot theme we heard right at the beginning of the programme. You remember that, that riding home figure? Here it is, beautifully combined with the watery figuration of the piano writing. You can imagine Schubert is riding home in his pony and trap, maybe with a fine, fat trout in his fishing basket. the end of the trout and you'll be able to hear that in context when we hear the complete work in a moment or two but first of all before that this is your opportunity to make yourself heard on radio three yes somebody over here can i just ask um you said it was a commission from the minor but did he specify the instrumentation or was that schubert's choice or did he have particular players in mind that's interesting. We don't know for certain. It's funny, um, there's an awful lot of Schubert's biography that's very, very sketchy, but it seems very likely, doesn't it? I mean, he's not going to say, can you get me a really good double bassist, by the way, if he's writing for amateurs, is he? This is for the... A Palmgarten lived in the town of Steyr, where there were good musicians around, but obviously he must have known he must have been writing for a select circle of friends. So there must have been a good bassist on hand, and that maybe got his imagination working. One thing I remember reading recently from a, a, a very different composer, but a composer who admired Schubert hugely, was Igor Stravinsky. Stravinsky said he loved it when his imagination was limited. If someone said, you can do what you want, he would panic. You know, there's nothing terrifies me more, he says, than a blank sheet of paper. But if someone said, you've got 20 minutes, and by the way, you've only got one clarinet, but you have got two bassoons, then he could work. 
And he, he, indeed, it makes you wonder sometimes whether one of the reasons why composers like Bach and Haydn were able to write so many cantatas or so many symphonies was because those were the kind of conditions they were working into. You can imagine, oh, Bach, next Sunday's cantata, the alto's sick. However, we have got a trumpeter from Dresden, so, you know, <laughs> suddenly your imagination is, is liberated. And maybe, well, I mean, still listening to the double bass writing, the double bass does do an awful lot of providing the bass, but there's that beautiful passage in the first movement where Graham really sings out from the bottom of the texture. It's a great treasurable moment, isn't it? Yeah. And he's created in the process one of the most original chamber textures, I think, in the whole literature. Would he have done so if there hadn't have been, say, that the double bassist around who maybe said, oh, please write for me, you know, or something along those lines. It's out of these conditions sometimes that, that real genius emerges. Anybody else anything they'd like to ask? Yes, lady over here. Do we know anything about Schubert's own playing? Was he a brilliant pianist himself? He was a good pianist but he wasn't a virtuoso. And in fact, there's a story of him um, attempting to play through his wonder of fantasy for his friends, and at one point in the funeral finale, leaping up and yelling, devil take this music, who the hell wrote it? <coughs> uh, um, you know, he, he, he wasn't like uh, Mozart or Beethoven a really virtuoso pianist. And sometimes I think that does come over in his writing. You can tell sometimes he takes risks or contrives impracticalities that maybe a really accomplished pianist would never have done. But then I love a comment a friend of mine made talking about another composer, something that it was Michael Tippett we were talking about, how he did something that we imagine Benjamin Britten would never have done, Britten maybe the more natural and sophisticated musician. And my friend said, he does it because he doesn't know he can't. And that can actually be quite liberating for a composer. You look at Janáček's piano writing, and Janáček, again, was not a great pianist. He does things that make pianists' toes curl in horror, and yet somehow or other he, bashing around on the piano, knew it was possible and arrived at it in a way that an educated pianist's superego might say, no, no, you can't possibly do that. So it, that itself can be liberating too. He, he was certainly good enough to accompany his own songs. Um, sometimes he sang them himself uh, to his own accompaniment, which is actually quite a skill. And so that may explain certainly his amazing identification with piano accompaniments in the songs. Anybody else? I think we have time for one more question. Over here, gentlemen, over here. Um, not so much a question, but just a comment mm. on the origin for the uh, instrumentation. Mm -hmm. I believe it was actually commissioned by mm. um, Pam Gardner mm. to mirror the uh, instrumentation of a quintet by Hummel, which was in fact an arrangement by Hummel of a septet which had been written and published just a few years earlier. Yes, I've heard this suggestion. It's a real possibility. When you're writing for chamber musicians to a commission, you do have to go with what's available. So maybe he thought, aha, there's a chance to explore what Hummel did. Anyway, thank you very much for your questions. I do think it's time, though, that we now heard the complete Trout Quintet, in which Schubert turns ideas from a song into the basis of a whole 40-minute substantial chamber work. It's performed for us by the Gould Trio and friends, Lucy Gould, violin, Alice Neary, cello, and Benjamin Frith, piano, with James Boyd, viola, and Graham Mitchell, bass. <laughs> 